Hello, everyone, and welcome. Today, we are going to be talking about game development methodologies and potentially best practices with how to structure and execute development. We'll cover topics such as team structure, typical game dev phases, key engineering processes, and finally, best practices and tools. And with us today to speak on these topics, I feel very fortunate to have some industry heavyweights with us here today, including first, Chris Cobb, co-founder and CTO of Pragma Platform who also formerly worked as an engineering lead at Riot Games and held software development roles at both PopCap and Microsoft. Next, we have Noemi Rolou, I think that's how you pronounce your last name, who is an associate producer at Square Enix Montreal, but who also worked in production at Ubisoft on games like Rainbow Six Siege, For Honor, and Assassin's Creed Origins. And finally, we have Shang Chen, who is CTO at Century Games, the Beijing-based games developer and publisher, and who also formerly founded mobile game studio OutAct and was formerly a technical director at Roblox and worked in software engineering at Tencent, EA, and Ubisoft. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. So, <laughs> so kind of just jumping right in, I thought we could first talk about basically development teams in terms of structure, roles and responsibilities. And I know, for example, Noemi, you used to work more on the console side and now kind of shifting into mobile. But in terms of like the different kinds of team structures and roles that you guys are seeing, can you speak to like the different things that you're seeing and maybe what can be more appropriate in certain environments relative to others? And, and maybe if you do want to start, Noemi? Sure. Um, first of all, I was uh, quite surprised actually when I when I started on mobile uh, at Square Enix that there is a lot of stuff that's actually the same. Uh, it's very similar, right? For mm -hmm. team structure, we're still making games, so there's a lot of things like on the day to day that's um, the same. Um, I feel what for me what changes the most like a team structure is the type of games you're making um so for example uh if you're making like a triple a traditional game or i would assume if you're making like a a mobile uh, uh premium game as well uh your team structure is going to be fairly the same right it's like you work on a product, no one sees it, and then you relaunch. But if you work on a gas game, I think that's where you have a lot of difference in your structure because you're not going to need the same expertise. Uh, you're not necessarily going to have to focus on the same team. So I feel like that's where you you see a lot of the difference, more on the type of games you make. Right. And maybe even within mobile, I would say like we're seeing kind of a couple of different structures, right? Like, so for example, uh, for some high production games, like some of the bigger studios like EA, we see like these huge teams, well, huge on a, in a relative sense where you might see teams that are between, let's say 30 to 100 versus a smaller, more compact, more supercell style team, which might be you know, 10 or less, or, you know, like between 10 to 15, for example. And so uh, may maybe Chris, do you want to speak in terms, can you speak in terms of like some of the different kinds of like maybe team sizes that you've seen and maybe I don't know, I know specific kinds of uh, role differences that you've seen as well? Yeah, I think when you start breaking down like, you know, who you need on a team, it's going to definitely yeah. depend on the genre you're working in, like uh, Noemi said. Um, I think that 
Oftentimes when you talk about the team scale, um, there's two main vectors that I would say you're going to have to think about, which is one, how you manage a team. It definitely has to change based on your team size. Yeah. Um, because when you're small and light, you can just kind of, you know, work around a whiteboard and keep a to-do list. Whereas if you're managing a team of 20 to, you know, 100, suddenly you need formal processes and check-ins and you have teams that depend on one another. Um, you know, in terms of the, the kind of people you need, um, I think that one factor beyond the genre that changes how many people you need is the difference between content development versus like systems. So if you're trying to work with a smaller team and you're building a kind of recurring scheduled event-based systems, you can oftentimes invest a smaller number of people in making something that is going to, you know, go on a cycle, right? Like a, a seasonal or a battle pass kind of thing. If you're going for high volume content where you have to produce tons and tons of new art, new animations, new gameplay elements, that's when your team size starts to really expand. Um, definitely on the like production and art side, um, but it, it will also increase, you know, the size of the engineering team you'd need. Right. And Sean, I, I know that in China, what we've been kind of seeing are some of these like mega teams, like, you know, with companies like whether it's Tencent Timmy or I even heard Wild Rift had, what, 450 <laughs> uh, for, for a mobile game. But can you speak to some of those issues? And like, like even for some of these teams that we're seeing in China, like these huge teams, you know, right. what uh, maybe you could speak to some of your experience there. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I don't think that's a China only uh, scenario. It's only basically yeah. if you want to make AAA games, you need a huge team. Um, for example, uh, in China, example is... Uh, Game Scene Impact, uh, they, as far as I know, they have over 600 developers uh, on this single game before they launched the game. So they probably have more today, I don't know. Um, uh, but I, I, I used to work for uh, AAA games uh, when I was at EA and Ubisoft. Um, uh, I remember the largest team I worked with was Madden NFL, even it's a, a serious game. Um, it, I, I think the team size uh, exclude the central tech team. Uh, it's already over a hundred. Um, I can't remember uh, for sure, but uh, something like that. Um, at Tencent, we used to make uh, MMORPG. Um, that's also a AAA quality game. So that's uh, the team size is close to a hundred, uh, probably 80, um, but yeah, but you, when you start to move to a smaller mobile-based game, uh, you, you see the, the team size uh, drastically decline, and uh, particularly at different phases. And when you are at early stage, you don't want a, a large team to work on the concept. It's going to actually hurt your development. You can be agile. We can talk about that later. I'm sure it can be on the topic. But... Uh, so usually you see a relatively smaller team work on concept, work on iterations, and then when you prove the concept, right, when, when you plan to go massive development, you, you grow the team, you hire a contractor, you hire full-time employees, um, the team size could, could go larger. Um, I, I, I definitely saw a team size over 50 for mobile game development, even if it's not a very complex mobile game. Uh, mm -hmm. like, Social game or uh, type that type of game, SLG type of game will have large. I mean, SLG is a Chinese terminology, it's 4X game. Let's <laughs> have a yeah. larger team. Um, it, it could be uh, close to 100, um, but, but you rarely see a mobile team larger than uh, 100 um, because mobile is relatively uh, lightweight, um, unless you, 
there are some type of mobile game like 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 the Kings of uh, Arena. I can't remember Owner of Arena, whatever ten some game. Honor of Kings. Yeah. Honor of Kings. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it, it it definitely has a much larger team because they need uh, they have a very high demand content right. development. They have the higher standard of that. So so it, it definitely varies of uh, game types and uh, platforms. Yes, yeah, so it sounds like if you have a heavy content cadence or maybe the other issue is I would assume that maybe the reason why Riot's Wild Rift team might be so big is they're trying to they're trying to speed things up. They're trying to get something out fast. Uh, That's right. It makes sense, right? The size of the game is definitely um, it requires that. I mean, because they're they are very sure about what they are going to do. They basically just uh, work on existing IP and make sure it works on the uh, um, the platform. It's definitely going to ship that. So they don't worry about any cost or anything like that. They have the AAA experience. That's why they can have a much much larger team. But right. for other smaller team, they, they really can't handle that kind of size. I thought that maybe the other aspect of the team structure that we could talk about is with respect to like specific roles. From my perspective, in terms of on the more of the product side, it feels like there's usually like this big difference with respect to like console or formerly console studios relative to mobile studios. And even on the mobile side, there's a difference when we talk about a product manager versus a producer and like what those roles mean or they entail. And then uh, it'd be great, Naomi, if you could speak to maybe some of your experience at Ubisoft and Square, Square Enix in terms of what does it mean to be a producer versus a PM. And then from a technology perspective, it'd be great to hear you know, when it comes to like the development sprint, like how do you, maybe you could speak in terms of what a typical dev team structure looks like and then what would be the scope of responsibility for like, you know, an engineering lead and, and that, that kind of thing. But Noemi, do you want to start in your experience? What have you seen with respect to like producers versus PMs and things like that? Yeah, so like the... PM job for me was definitely like a new thing when I joined Square Enix okay. uh, because I don't know if other AAA have this role, but um, at uh, when I was at Ubisoft, it's not a role we had. Like the this role is filled, but by many different people, if you will. Yeah. Uh, even if you have monetization and everything, uh, so and like AAA is less uh, maybe KPI driven than mobile, right? There's a big difference there. Yeah. So I saw uh, um, that that took some adjustment <laughs> uh, for me, like to really well understand the role as well and how it interact with producers and also with the creative team, right? Uh, because um, I think, I think um, like the product manager is yeah it has some things that go with the producers as well like that overlaps a little bit or that is similar but I think there's a, a big creative side as well to it uh, so I see I see this role is really between in between like in between like a director and a producer a little bit again I don't know if it's like that in all companies <laughs> uh, but for us that's where it's okay. it sits yeah, and maybe from my own experience, kind of like the, the sort of patterns that I've seen is, for example, to your point, 
It does seem that a lot of HD, like PC console companies, this role of PM is relatively new. You generally have a producer. And like within mobile teams, it does seem like the big difference is really around in that, you know, some mobile game studios, the role of a producer and a PM are different. It does seem that the companies that have more of a console legacy structure they're usually producer driven, meaning the producers make a lot of the calls with respect to like features, backlog, product vision, things like that. Whereas the more mobile centric companies, it's more PM. And then what we're also seeing is like, uh, like the interface between a PM and producer to engineering is often different at different gaming companies as well. Where, whereas when like at a company like Zynga, a PM may never directly interface with an engineer and you have a producer instead as that interface, whereas at other gaming companies that are, especially the ones that are smaller and more full stack, you have the PMs who may be directly interfacing with engineering, overseeing development sprints, running the scrum, things things of that nature. But maybe Sean or Chris, can you talk about your experience? And, and maybe if you guys also have any thoughts in terms of what you've seen maybe some thoughts in terms of your preferences or what you think are is a better structure for whether it's you know on the console side or the mobile side maybe starting with you chris yeah so i mean one of the difficulties with this conversation i think is that yeah. every studio has its own names and so you'll yeah. get, it's really <laughs> tough to standardize yeah. what it means um, sure. but like if you zoom all the way out i think that you've got uh, some kind of vision holder and that's like the person more on the creative side you know trying to bring to uh, trying to imagine like what the end you know experience is going to be for players right. and then you've got to have somebody who's helping run teams and so whether that's the same person or whether you know and and i think that this gets into the the different flavors or styles so yes. at riot we had a formal product manager on a team but they were purely from the product lens of prioritization. And then we had a separate dev manager or probably what most people think of as a producer doing the like running the team scrum. Mm -hmm. um, but for heavily engine, uh, like engineer oriented teams, then the tech lead was very involved in that process and prioritization too, because there's so many technical decisions that, it, you know, dictate what order you have to build things in. So, you know, I think that when you get down to it, there's like a couple key questions that if you can answer well, I think that it creates a lot of clarity for the team. Yeah. And if you get it muddled, then people can get confused. And part of that is ultimately who is making the decision of what the team is focused on. Right. Um, but second, that sometimes doesn't get accounted for is like how much resources you're going to invest in this effort, right? So on the one hand, you say, well, we have to have this thing. It has to exist. But the question is, well, is that a two-week effort or a two-month effort? And a lot of that's going to come down to some of the details of how you're going to execute, which means that the engineers need to be involved at least in that conversation. Um, so in general, I just say like when, when I've seen it go wrong is when um, it's unclear who gets to make that final decision on what the team works on. But, but a little bit more subtle is um, if it gets uh, kind of unclear um, how much uh, investment the, the studio is ready to make on a particular feature. And so I think when you're smaller or it's earlier and you're just trying to iterate quickly, you really just have to decide what's the most important thing and how long are we going to spend experimenting? Once you get into that full production cycle, then it has to become a little bit more mechanical and predictable. Um, but at that point, you want to solve some of your big, you know, risks or tech issue areas so that you can actually build a schedule. I think teams that want to try to build a schedule before 
they've answered enough questions, oftentimes are just going to, you know, suffer from picking a date and finding out that there's way too much iteration happening for that to be really reliable. So that gets back into those development phases. Um, so. And Sean, what are your thoughts? And may, maybe if you could like describe for a typical, let's say mobile game engineering team, what would that team kind of look like in terms of roles and number of heads or something like that? Right, right, sounds good. Yeah, I was about to say, Chris pretty much summarized what I wanted to say. Um, I actually can't speak to uh, aspect, which is a little bit new. Um, one is the uh, the culture difference. I, I think the Western uh, team and Eastern team, they are still quite different, um, which I wanted to mention a little bit. The other is we can definitely talk about the tech team structure uh, after that. So the first thing is like uh, the... Uh, the Eastern team mostly uh, originated from the Japanese uh, video game development is uh, um, basically they are producer driven. Um, so you you basically see a producer in the team who is, a, is a, the biggest guy over there and make all the decisions. And the producer is like uh, doing the Western world executive producer, but in my opinion, it's, it's, it's more than exact producer. It's basically just the owner of this entire product, entire product line, entire team, right? Like, so the morale driven and it's everything. So like this guy makes all the decisions. His vision is important and uh, or, or her, he or her's vision is important. And, uh, and, and, and that, that's, that's it. And this is, this is basically the, uh, the spirit of this entire team. Uh, you you mostly see like when sometimes they release the game and uh, you see a lot of fans. Uh, they want the 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 copy from the signature from the producer. This is culture kind of thing. It's very similar in China. And the producer is the number one guy in this entire team. Uh, in our for example, in our company, the producer owns PNL of the the game and uh, and makes all the decisions. And we do kind of the review with the producer directly. Even the tech review, the producer participating in that most of the time. Uh, that person needs to know everything. This is quite different from the Western game developments. In the Western people usually own what they, they are responsible for, like the tech director on the tech and the art director on the art and the producer mostly do the production, things like that. But in, in Eastern world, it's always like the top-down structure and the producer owns everything. <laughs> and then the art director and the, the tech lead or things like that. So, so this is the number one thing I wanted to mention. The second is we definitely talk about the, uh, the text team. Um, so I think it's structurally pretty similar. I mean, I mean, there is not much culture difference because I used to work with uh, those cross-continent development uh, and think the easiest thing that we can connect both sides is the tech. So because uh, people speak the same language. Um, and it's much easier and the structure is easy, always like a, uh, a tech lead uh, making decisions and do, do, doing the infrastructure designs, um, tech designs, and then uh, the uh, like senior people doing kind of a senior work and junior people work on other, like, uh, uh, other stuff. Um, so it's very straightforward for the tech team. So, so basically uh, one small difference is uh, which only when I started working in China, I noticed is like most Chinese game development, uh, development studio, uh, they tend to uh, separate the uh, client team and the uh, server team. And uh, there is always gonna a server team lead and client team lead in the team. Um, 
So it's not quite the case in, at least in, in US when I was working there, like we have gameplay design, uh, gameplay programmers and they, they work on, they could be full stack or they could just uh, work on gameplay code. Um, there are some like, uh, when I was at EA, I was in uh, the, the online team. So online team that not only work on the server stuff, but also the client uh, stuff that related to the, uh, the online gameplay. So, uh, so that's kind of a little bit different because it seems, in my opinion, it seems in, in, in the Eastern uh, culture, like people tend to make the responsibility, kind of, the boundary much clearer. Um, so people will focus on their stuff, uh, which could be a good stuff. But I personally wanted to, uh, in my opinion, like I think a, a team that they collaborate more usually be more efficient. So I'm personally encouraging team to, to cross the boundary as much as possible, uh, not just to like focus on your stuff. Um, so, so that's my opinion. Got it. And maybe kind of shifting to the next topic, which is really around different phases of game development. I think that at least on the, the mobile side, there's generally some notion of pre-production, alpha, beta, soft launch, hard launch, but what, the objectives are and how, whether it's the team size or the specific objectives of each of those different development phases are different based upon the company. And so I thought we could just kind of talk about how it may differ for each of you. And Nomi, do you want to start in terms of like what you're seeing, whether it's at Square Square Enix or Ubisoft or just more generally speaking? Uh, Yeah. Um, I think like what you describe is is pretty much also standard for... um, for AAA, at least my experience in, mm-hmm. in AAA, right? Uh, we have conception before pre-prod as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, like when your team size is really small uh, and it's a very waterfall. What I've found so far, at least how we're doing it at Square Enix right now in Montreal, um, we have some phases that overlap. For example, on our side, we've, uh, we've decided to go live very early. Um, so it means that we're doing production while also being in beta phase in live. Mm-hmm. So we're really doing like our learning our live ups while also continuing to make, to build the game itself. Um, so that's something that um, I think slowly, um, like big AAA company or at least like a PC company are doing more and more. Uh, but I find it like much easier on mobile, maybe because our teams are smaller as well. Uh, and there's like a proper infrastructure as well, like uh, on Google, where you can be on a beta track and stuff like that. Um, so for me, that was a, a, a big change. And it's also, uh, there's big gains of going live really fast uh, because like you can have real time uh, feedback and you can really see like, is our infrastructure holding up really well? Or like, do we have to change our matchmaking or network uh, structure or anything? Uh, but it also brings like a, a complexity uh, for the team. And I think we're going to talk about that later. But like, how do we structure the work and how do we make it clear to people what are the priorities and everything? Because of your, because we're doing two phases at the same time. 
Right. And so to some degree, if I'm hearing you correctly, Noemi, by trying to go live as quickly as possible, what you may be doing is just trying to like, you're trying to get as much market feedback as quickly as possible. So to some degree, the way that you structure your pre-production relative to, let's say, your, your, your alpha and beta might be a little bit different because you're just, because if you do value that market feedback, you may be kind of speeding through those phases. Is that, is that fair to say or? Um, I think it's not necessarily speeding through them, but more mm -hmm. doing them in parallel. Okay. Um, so because, for example, for us, how I would like visualize it is that basically our beta phase is feeding our production phase. Okay. So we still have production goal, but because we have constant feedback, because we release uh, fairly often as well to the public. Uh, so that means that we can really iterate as soon um, as we want on things while also working on the more long-term things, which if you think about it, is not really far from uh, what uh, Gas Game do, for example, what we did on, on Rainbow, how we worked, uh, is a little bit like that, right? Because you always work on stuff for the future while also maintaining everything that's live and doing your operations and your events and everything. So it's a little bit like that, but to a smaller scale. Got it. Chris, what about you? How do you think about those different development phases? Yeah, well, I definitely would say that um, what uh, Shang mentioned uh, earlier on about keeping that team size small during that exploratory phase is essential. Um, you know, the ability for a small group of people to experiment and iterate quickly is really important. And we had one R&D team that, um, you know, ended up um, kind of, I guess they, they shut down one experiment and moved people onto new projects, but they were doing a retrospective on like what that looked like and what that meant. And one of the key insights they had was they had grown um, from, you know, six people up to, I think, 20 or 30. And they said that once they got to that size, it was so hard in that earliest exploratory phase to get any consensus, to get any buy-in because everyone's going to have their own ideas. So I definitely think that there's that key aspect of you know, starting small um, early on. And then I think that it's, it is a hard transition though, as you go into like pre-prod, because the goal with pre-prod, I would say is about trying to get the engine of content development or the process of content development built. And that is engineering work to build systems and tools for content developers. Um, but you're still trying to iterate on core systems and feedback. And so if you try to create a pipeline or a system too early, then it makes it harder to continue iterating and adapting. However, if you don't build those tools for yourself, especially if you're pursuing like a games as a service title, you know, that gets really painful later because maybe you've, you know, kind of managed to produce enough content for your launch day. But if those systems aren't already online by the time you go live, then suddenly, you know, that next content release becomes a real struggle. So the balancing act, I think, as Noemi was describing, it's it's both working on those long-term things and making it easier for the team to work and still trying to produce value. And that is, I feel like it's a nice edge. You have to constantly try to balance, um, you know, if you over-invest in short-term content, then you might find yourself in a really bad spot where you cannot keep your content pipeline going. On the other hand, if you spend all your time trying to bake these really robust systems, you might find that that system is shaped in a way that doesn't let you iterate on your gameplay features. So I, I do think that that's the, the, the fundamental trade and uh, it's definitely not, not an easy one, uh, but it's kind of, um, it, it's, it's a fun journey too. Sean, what do you think? So yeah, I mean, echo on that. Um, I, I think one thing I was trying to emphasize with my teams are like process. And it's very interesting that we're talking about that right now. 
is even the team is small, it should still follow some kind of guide guideline. You you don't just uh, like be ad hoc, and you 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 could be kind of agile, but you 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 don't want to be oh, making a mess for the future development. So um, so a few things we want to do is first you you need to have a. I think we are going to talk about that later, but uh, I, I can give a kind of a early. Uh, sneak peek is that uh, you you wanted to uh, uh, have some kind of uh, uh, process defined um, for your future development and you try to stick with that process basically uh, for example if you want to run a daily build uh, you need to have that like CICD set up um, so you you, you wanted to make sure like in the future when you grow the team uh, people will know where to get the build and uh, they need to follow a certain process so they don't break the build they don't don't cause troubles to others and like certain guidelines need to be followed and also like the uh, uh, the, the asset creation um, part is similar like code coding standard and the arch asset creation and we have all the standard like set up that you need to follow that um, it's not taking a lot of your time and it's probably just like you need some time to read that and you just uh, when you uh, work on your stuff, make sure like you you stick with that. Uh, that's it. Um, but if you don't do that in the early stage, uh, you're going to find it very, very hard in the future to uh, to kind of uh, uh, kind of optimize that. And uh, uh, that's like always the number one thing I talk to the team, even the team size is, uh, is small and very early stage, because if, if you don't keep reemphasizing these kind of things, people tend to go wild. <laughs> they, they always think like, I need to get this done really quick. I have so many ideas. I want to really done that. Um, and they, because they don't, they don't care much about the future. So they actually, people tend to focus on what they are seeing. Like even when you play game, right? Um, when we do game design, we want to always provide the, 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 the shortest feedback to the player. So they, they immediately get excited and they keep playing the game. It's sad, right? You, you, but you, you need to, but it's, it's pro professional development and you need to uh, emphasize that, like you need to think a little bit ahead. You don't always focus on what you are seeing right now. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's what I wanted. So I think the most important thing for uh, for process. Okay. Yeah, and maybe just for the audience, I can kind of give my own views in terms of game development phases and the, the way we do things at our game studio, which is that for us, like we view pre-production as really about the elimination of key risks. So if we have a game design and you know we have a game that we want to make, what are all the key risks of that, you know, the top three, four, five things that can kill this game? You know, is it, you know, is it the control scheme? Is it a monetization mechanic? Is it a specific kind of feature? And then we try to build prototypes in pre-production against those key risks. And then for us, after that. Alpha for us is more about the core loop and the key features, like building those out and seeing if those work or not. Beta is around like developing, you know, at least an initial layer of, of content. Soft launch then is about filling out all the content and about proving unitary economics. So on a per player basis, can we make money? And then hard launch is scaling the project and making sure that we can, you know, uh, 
fill, you know, fulfill the economics on a project basis. So that's that's kind of how we view it. But Nomi, I thought I thought it's interesting how you guys are trying to go live as soon as possible and, and having the dual tracks in terms of development. One additional thing that we are trying to do right now is to, you know, we're pr still pretty early in development, but we are trying to set up like a very tiny additional prototype team so that not only do we have pre-production and trying to, uh, trying to, uh, trying to, trying to gain a better characterization or understanding of key risks in pre-production, but then also having like a monthly prototype team, which might be just like two or three people, where we continuously start think, think about risks for the game. And then every month build like a small prototype. We're, we're, trying, to, uh, we're, we're trying to build that out right now as well. It's really interesting. Um, and I think like the, the, like, um, when you describe all your phases, I think also like the goal when you go live super early is mm -hmm. quite different, right? We're not going to look at uh, monetization KPI, for example, and yeah. stuff like that. Um, but you're still like, it's more gameplay focused and like fun focus and retention and seeing things like that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and it's also, it's a great place to prototype as well because uh, it's lower risk. If you send something that, uh, yes, after all, it didn't work as well as we intended maybe, or like we tried something. I know on Rainbow, we had the test server, which is, remind me a little bit of this in the philosophy behind it. Yeah. Where we would send early, early features. Right. I, I do think it's very interesting though, because the Ubisoft approach versus the approach my studio takes like the, if you think about it strategically, like the way that you that those two approaches are developed, you actually have to have a different set of expertise, right? So like, because the way that you guys are going, you're probably going to want to be more data oriented, having facilities to do multivariate testing, being able to get that feedback from your players. And so you need that infrastructure and you've got more of a data orientation. Whereas with us, we're a little bit more internally driven, right? More intuition focused. We believe that here's a risk. We, and, and for us, because we're not getting data from, you know, from, from the public, we're building prototypes that we are intuitively through our own intuition are trying to make judgment calls on, for, for example. And now, now there's some things we're going to run tests on, but by and large, it's going to be more intuition driven. So I, I, I thought that's kind of interesting. These, these two different approaches. Yeah. Uh, that does, um, I was just going to jump in to say yeah. that, that, that reminds me of um, when you talk about collecting feedback from players and how you're trying to iterate as a team, there's always that challenge of, you know, do you let every point of feedback, you know, redirect the team's priorities and change everything, or do you have to kind of stick to your intuition or your, or, you know, you kind of the direction you've set. And just like the rest of this ac activity, it is very much, um, one of balance and trying to find that right, uh, thing. But there's a couple key, like, you know, I guess bits of advice I've received over the years that have been really helpful. And, and one of those is, if you know the problems your team is facing, you know, when you talk about addressing these key risks, if you already have a clear picture of, well, this thing doesn't yet look the way we we think it needs to, or, you know, it has these essential characteristics, it's okay to wait on feedback, at least for some time. Um, it's it's kind of like, you know, don't have somebody um, revise an essay you're writing if you haven't done your own revision pass and, and taking care of the easy stuff that you already know. Um, so, you know, just, as with everything, you're trying to strike that balance, but it is okay to kind of, um, another one is like if you're doing player labs or you're doing internal testing, um, if 
if three testers have already tripped over one bug or one problem or one friction point, you don't need the other five testers or 10 to go through that same experience. So you can say, hey, we have already got this and then help them along. So there's a lot of theory around how you run you know, tests and labs. And generally you wanna stand back and let the player experience what you've created without interfering. But at the same time, once you've gotten the feedback, you don't need to kind of continue receiving it. So I think that as you talk about collecting input from players, um, it's okay to say, well, we've gotten that feedback. We understand this, or, Hey, we already know about this problem. So we don't want our players to have to suffer <laughs> through these, you know, friction points that we already know about. So that's definitely an area that I think it is good to trust the team and, and, you know, yeah, kind of embrace what you yeah. know. I think you make a strong point, right. In terms of how do you use the data, right. That you do have to have a balance, both intuition as well as taking what the data is telling you. So that's, that's definitely something that is both sort of art and science and kind of the hard part about making games. Yeah, and, and there's a, I think that's a whole other probably uh, recording, but there's a big team management component to it as well. I think as soon as you're a live game or have live part because the devs are going to read the forum and how do you manage that, right? Like you said, Chris, like, so not every comment is uh, treated as like something you need to act upon right now. But that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> okay. And maybe moving to the next topic, I, I know we're kind of getting short on time here, but definitely for me, like these are all super interesting topics. But the next topic to think about, I wanted to discuss key engineering processes that a development team should have. Now, whether it's, you know, code review, Sean, you mentioned like a daily build process. I don't know if you're using Jenkins or Cloud Build or however you're doing it, but like, in terms of more on the engineering side, actually. So on the engineering side, whether it's CI, code review, things like that, what are important engineering practices? And Nomi, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that from an engineering perspective, but uh, maybe we start with you. Not, probably not as much <laughs> okay. uh, because I am not a tech person, mm -hmm. uh, but uh but I used to be a closer, which mm -hmm. is the person who arrived at the end to make sure everything's wrapped up and we can ship it. Uh, and code reviews for me are a bust. Okay. <laughs> Always. Chris? I guess I'll just quickly say two parts that are, I, I think, really important. The, the first is... <laughs> you, ha you have to be able to run your game. And I know that that sounds obvious. <laughs> um, but... When teams go too deep on like when they have, you know, an 18 different branches and different copies and clones and you've got all at the end of the day, you're shipping one video game, which means all the code, all the art, all the assets have to be combined. And I think getting the team to practice building them product and running it every day or whatever that cadence is, but but as frequently as you possibly can is essential. And, um, you know, I'll confess that early on with even though we're only doing you know the back end part of video game development we kind of skipped a couple steps on getting some of those ci systems and those build systems set up because we were working closely with a game partner so we just kind of leaned on that but quickly we ran into all the friction that is like hey but if we can't take it end to end on our side it's hard for us to know whether it works or not and even though it sounds obvious um it, it's really important and so i would just say that really and, and it gets into the CI and CD part, but it also gets into how you manage the code base. And if you let people, you know, different parts of the team work for months at a time separate and try to glue it all back together, you're going to find that you're going to end up paying more cost in integration than if the, you help the team practice integrating frequently. Um, and again, if you're only shipping a single game product, then, you know, you only get value <laughs> when all the code and all of it's packaged together and you can play your game. So 
All right. What about you, Sean? So it sounds like CI seems to be something that <laughs> that both of you guys agree is relatively right, important. right, right. Yeah. So, so yeah, because right, right, right now I'm in a relatively large uh, company because we have many teams. Uh, so one advantage we have is uh, we have the uh, 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 the luxury to have a central tech team, and they they can focus on certain stuff. Because we have, for example, central backend, central platform, central client. Um, Central graphic, so they will be able to deliver certain packages. And for example, the CI/CD system we are building that with our uh, central backend team. So they, uh, it's not just for the daily integration; it's also for uh, game publishing. So they actually the entire thing is uh, uh, integrated into that. Uh, so we're still working on that. It's not really there, but uh, but. The, the blueprint is pretty uh, beautiful. So I wanted to brag a little bit about that. So, because uh, ultimately when you are uh, developing, uh, you want it to sim simulate as much as possible is the live environment, um, things like that, because you don't want to build something that you tested fine locally when you ship that to the live environment with all kinds of different weird issues. Um, so uh, since we are, we, for example, we are work, we're using a, a Docker and uh, uh, Kubernetes to uh, to do the entire CI/CD and uh, publishing, um, and it, it works very well with the local testing because and this, the local testing environment is going to be very similar to the live environment. So uh, our central QA team will be able to intervene and test this on their own servers and do the test by themselves without even asking the game team. To set up server for them or the ops team to, to set up the live environment for them because they're going to be able to spawn this similar environment and doing the test. Uh, so I would say a smaller team usually don't have the uh, opportunity to do that because it's really time consuming. You, you could spend like several uh, man months to just to get one bit of stuff done. Um, so so smaller team, I would uh, encourage them to really just to focus on using leverage those uh, open source uh, solutions like Jenkins or Team City, uh, and help them to build the pipeline and follow the best practices. Some people, other people already show them, right? Because the easiest thing is to copy, right? It's like uh, you you just need to. Uh, copy that and tailor a little bit to your team because different teams always have their own situations. You you can't do a perfect copy because otherwise there's we're not here to discuss about process, right? It's always uh, some some uh, kind of specific uh, issues. Uh, you are you are, for example, your team could be too large, your team could be too small, um, and you have like missing key persons, things like that. And you just want to tailor the process and the uh, the, the tools uh, for your team. Uh, and I think that that should work in general. And, uh, and but but yeah, CI is something I think is pretty important. Uh, I, I I'm not a big fan of code review. Uh, I think large team or the games already on uh, is live ops in live ops, large game in live ops. Uh, they probably want to do code review. Uh, when I was at EA working on Madden, uh, it's a console game. You know, oh. oh Old days that when you ship when you, you when you ship the the disc you, you you won't be able to to do any patch right unlike today like I, mean, I was always kidding like the programmer get lazy lazy and lazier because they they always can fix their stuff in <laughs> certain ways I mean, in old days there's no way when you when you ship or call that gold right we celebrate that I mean people take one day off 
uh, after guild. Um, because after that, you really don't have anything to do. Right? You, you literally just can't work on anything. So people tend to be very uh, like uh, strict about the, uh, the, the code quality. And so that's why it's very important to do code review in those kind of circumstances. And similar, similarly, for a large game, uh, like uh, it's already live ops, you want to make sure your, 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 your update doesn't break the game. And it's very important. I would encourage code reviewing for that type of thing. But for the early game development, prototyping, even like early development, even massive development for a, for a new game, I don't think it's important. Um, you, it's up to you. I mean, certain teams, they feel like quality is the key. Go ahead with that. But I'm, I'm just not that type of person. I think uh, efficiency yeah. is more important. But would you also think that it also has to do with situational context as well, right? So if you have like a small team of super veteran programmers, code review, yeah, a little less important. But if you have a mixed team with some junior people who need to also learn, then maybe you also do code review. And then you could also just think about, you know, what parts, like there's this critical part of code, you know, your net code or your whatever, right? Like maybe you want to code review that part, your UI, your other code, yeah, it's just like whatever. That's a very good point. Yeah, I, I was, I was very generic. Uh, it's definitely going to be case by case. Uh, for example, if you're a new hire, join the company for just the one month, you want to make sure, and at least you use code review to to review this person. Right, you think this person is culturally fit with your engineering team or not? I mean, this is the easiest way to check that. Uh, second, you don't want that person to build the build, break the build. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's definitely important. And certain certain core uh, system, uh, you you do want to make sure it's not uh, like some certain bug going to be hide over there. Um, so yeah, I agree with you. It's it's always uh, case by case. Yeah. So um, yeah, just to talk a little bit, like um, you know, we have an interesting group in terms of. Uh, having a lot of experience on the team. Uh, but you know, you, you'll find that with a lot of companies, you'll hear things like, well, let's make sure that we don't have um, you know, single points of failure, right? So you want some, you know, more than one person to know an area. But I'd say the most natural outcome is that you're gonna end up having one expert that owns one area of your system. So, you know, our group has uh, gone pretty deep down the kind of extreme programming, like very formal kind of agile processes where we practice test-driven development and um, and pair programming. Um, I, I would say that that's not a common approach, but the areas that I've seen that be really successful are it naturally addresses some of those questions about single points of failure. It naturally builds the code review into the process of having people work on it. Um, there's definitely the production tension of like, hey, are we working fast enough or not? But one of those areas that I guess we've leaned on in particular, and and some of this emphasis is on backend development. When you're running a 3D physics engine and doing simulation, uh, doing very controlled automated tests can be a lot more difficult. So there's different tools for different jobs. But um, one area we've seen, though, is that by reducing defects and shipping fewer bugs, um, we definitely have seen an uplift in long-term efficiency. Um, mm -hmm. So you know we had different product teams throughout Riot, for example. And some of those teams, if, if they had issues with quality, uh, in a few circumstances, we had teams saying things like, well, we're spending 50% of our time on live support and dealing with problems. You know, And so you say, well, half of the team's effort is now spent on solving the problems of the things that you know were, were built before. Um, whereas for a couple um, teams that I worked with, you know, we were able to maintain that quality bar such that 
in general, it was, you know, less than a 10% drag. It was something like, hey, we might have a couple, two or three incidents a year. Um, this is in the context of a live service game. So there is something, I, I guess there is a case to be made for quality, which says if the team is not having to constantly go back to <laughs> previously shipped features and fix and repair things, then you can kind of have that steady progression of like, hey, you know, we can always build and ship new features, um, which is great. Um, but it is going to be dependent upon which area of the code base you're in. And there's definitely areas for which some of these patterns are a lot more difficult, um, like in the middle of a game engine. <laughs> and Chris, when you think about whether it's like a lead-driven code review process versus peer-based versus, I guess, what you're doing now with pair programming, can you speak to like when you think one is more appropriate versus another or that kind of thing? Yeah, I think they'll all have benefits. I mean, just getting feedback on things like names and structure is going to just improve the quality of the code because it makes it easier for the next person to come in and read it. So mm -hmm. even peer reviews can be really valuable. Um, I definitely agree uh, that you know having reviewing new folks or, or less experienced folks can be a benefit just because it gives them you know a teaching feedback loop, which I think has a lot of value. One area that we're actively trying to explore and discuss is about those coding standards, which is like, you know, sometimes you'll get in arguments about formatting and that's not something <laughs> I care a huge amount about, but there's like a deeper level to that, which is like, how do we, how do we structure and organize things? How do we name things? And even yeah. though that sounds small, um, it, it, it does make a big difference for the team, especially when you get to a larger team size. It's like, if we have a set of, there's the folder structures here, how things get named here, how things, you know, work together, then, you learn how one area of the system works and then you can translate that. That helps you move your um, team around. Engineers can work on other groups uh, stuff. Um, so I do think that there's a case to be made and that should probably be lead driven because I've yet to see a consensus driven approach kind of uh, <laughs> <Right>. that outcome. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, yeah so I, I wanted to echo on that. That's exactly what I was talking about earlier. Like it's uh, it's something, you, something small you need to do well in order to scale. And uh, typically that's lead driven because it's just like a it because it's there's no best or bad like no good or bad it's just like one st one standard everyone follows that's it and the future like everyone on the same page it's much easier for communication there's no gap so that's it Naomi did you want to say something yeah uh, I my answer was way too uh generalized too much I'm sorry okay. because I'm like I spent the last five years on live games. So for sure that uh, that taints my lens of <laughs> what we need. But also, do you feel like the bigger the team, the more review there should? Because um, it's fairly new that I'm on a smaller team. Um, back at Ubisoft, the teams are well known to be really big. So I, I wonder if it colored our processes and our best practices, right? For code reviews, because you have a lot more dependencies if you have, I don't know, like hundreds of people working on the same branch, like three, four, 500 people working on the same branch every day. Yeah, I mean, these guys are the CTOs, but I, yeah. I would assume the, <laughs> the bigger the team, the more mix of junior versus senior and that kind of thing, I would assume that you'd yeah. have a higher requirement for, for code review and things like that. But in summary, sounds like the three sort of engineering processes we're talking about that are probably important to look at, CI, code review, and then having some type of coding standard is what it sounds like we're saying here, right? Okay, so maybe we could move to the final topic, which is essentially what should the development, development methodology, whether you're agile or waterfall in, in terms of the, if you're sprint based, whether it's like a, a two week sprint versus one week, three weeks, you know, things like that. Like maybe we could talk about that. And, you know, it's kind of funny though, because 
I believe there was a study, it was called the Game Outcomes Study, that kind of showed that there was actually no difference between teams that you know employed a waterfall methodology versus some form of agile methodology in terms of outcomes for games. But wondering what you guys think or what your experiences are in terms of what you believe are best practices when it comes to agile, waterfall, you know, your, your sprint structure and how you've actually kind of, and then we can kind of dive in into the sprint itself. And I know, Sean, I've talked to you about this before as well, in terms of how you structure it and all that kind of stuff. But uh, Nomi, maybe we could start with you again and your thoughts in terms of like just this development practice methodology. I have so many opinions on this, uh, but I'll try to uh, to be concise. Uh, I think in a nutshell, what's the best practice is whatever is going to work for your team at any given moment, right? Um, I think when we come up with our best practice for our team, it depends on people's style and the teams you have. Like, is it a five-piece people team? Is it a 20, 30, 400 people team? Um but I think what is key is to adapt it as well, right? I think um, proper agile works really well when you're in conception or pre-production where you want to do, when you want to go fast, you want to iterate quickly, fail quickly if you have to as well. Um, but once you get in a bigger team and your features take longer than one sprint, well, maybe that's when you need to move on to a more um, hybrid model of like some things are going to be more waterfall and some other are maybe more agile. I am not an agile evangelist, as you can see, uh, but um, uh, but yeah, I think I think adapting your style to where you're at in the project to the team type of team you have. Um, I feel also if you have a really big team, it's very valuable to have different. Uh, layer of methodology so you give your team leads as well in your um in the, or your feature team if you have cross-functional teams you give them liberty to organize their work in a way that you can follow as a producer but also in a way that works for them on a day-to-day basis right um and uh for <laughs> spring plan specifically that that's a tough one because i think again earlier you can have really short sprint and it works but uh, once you get in production, uh, it gets more difficult to have work sometimes that is uh, that you can break in small chunks. Uh, and then Jira becomes a mess <laughs> if your work can't fit into, uh, into like the exact length of your sprint. Uh, we're still exploring with that at the moment, actually, uh, on our project. So we've just moved to four-week sprints to see if that would work a little bit better, give a bit more time to the team because we're uh, entering a phase where we're building more the systems and the big structure and uh, really focusing on stuff that we can't rush. Uh, so, yeah, but we need to adapt. I think that's uh, I think that's something, maybe it's just on the management side, but uh, uh, I think it's something we need to do more and to... Uh, ask yourself, why do we work this way? Especially, um, for example, uh, if you're trying to follow Agile and game development, often you're going to have a lot of pain points if you're trying to follow it to the letter. And, well, maybe it's not because how we make games doesn't work, but maybe it's just that those points of Agile are 
It's just don't fit with how you teamwork. And maybe there's another way to, to, to go about it that's going to be as efficient, like you said, if the studies found that there's no difference. But yeah. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, um, it's, it's a really interesting topic. There's a lot of bit books written on, on the subject. And, uh, you know, it's funny because the, the origin of the Agile methodology, and it was named such because what was it came from an engineering group. And what they said was, well, we want to learn how to move fast and change. And so the whole structure originally had been built to say, start with a certain set of practices. And then every week or every iteration, you should be evolving the process. But as soon as something gets a name, then it has a strict set of rules and then people have this rigidity. And I think that's very natural. Um, so I definitely subscribe to the lowercase agile idea that you have, which is really what Noemi said, which is you need a process that works for your team. So if people are doing things that feel painful to them, that feel like they're wasting their time in meetings, that they feel like they cannot plan or, or execute in a way that feels good, then, then that's broken. Um, so, you know, um, I, I think that, the goal is at the end, you want to ship a product. And if it's a service-based game, you want to ship a product, you know, once every couple of weeks or once every month. And so help, I, I guess it kind of goes back to some of the technical practices, but really getting the team practiced that we need to be able to build and run our game and test it and play it. And, and that testing component really matters. So I, I guess I don't find myself very prescriptive on you have to use this formal practice. And frankly, I think any decent practice, you know, any decent process that's right, consistent um, will be fine as long as you're paying attention to the pain points for the team. Um, and, you know, one of the things I always try to measure is do, does the team feel like our meeting time is a waste? I mean, every engineer, I think, or artist probably like wants to be at their desk working. Um, but I will say that when my teams have been doing the best, it felt like, oh, we're getting in a room to like plan together and everyone was like in involved. And then most of the time, the, you know, the, the, when it's going badly is people are on their phone, they're not paying attention. So I do think you want to tailor your process to the team. And if not, you should change it. John? So yeah, I think uh, one thing important for um, the process is the uh, expectation management. Um, so it's, well, why I mentioned that is like uh, <laughs> there's a, a few good examples with myself uh, what I have experienced when I was uh, uh, running my own startup Outact. Um, initially, it was in, our investor wanted to heavily involved in the game development. So basically we ended up having like a two week review. Uh, so we had to tailor our entire process to be a two week agile process that we are keeping making demos for, for our shareholder. So uh, that's quite disrupting. And uh, after and I think back you know, when I'm doing post-molten, uh, I think we used to blend the, uh, the other side. We thought that they kind of want to micromanagement that uh, they want micromanagement, and uh, it's it's always like, a, in my opinion, when we were discussing about that, it was like one side issue. But uh, later on, when I review this entire thing, it's two side. It's not just one side. The thing is like it, the, the 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 expectation was not met. Um, it's, it's not properly managed. So the thing is like you need to set a a very good expectation uh, during our development because it's different, right? It's different cases because there could be a external partner, it could be a publisher, it could be an investor, it could be all just your team. 
different team, they all have always have expectations and different people have the expectation. First of the thing, most important, you need to align that expectation, put everyone on the same page. And this is, in my opinion, the most important thing about all the process. You just like make sure like people knows what others are doing and what your, your team goes. And this is what I, in my opinion, is like very important thing for, for, for Scrum or for any agile process, right? Like they are doing those uh, Scrum meeting, they want to set a goal or something like that. And they, at the end of the Scrum meeting, and they, they review that. Um, then they break that into small chunks. So it's much easier for you to set goals if, because if the goal is too far away, people just fall apart. So, so this is important. If you can properly manage the expectation of all shareholders, and it could be the manager, it could be other employees, it could be your peers, um, it could be senior executives, and then your entire process will be much, much easier. And this is the biggest lesson I've learned from all my previous experience. And I, and I've been always trying to tell our teams, like, uh, don't be hesitant to communicate what you are trying to do with all the, uh, the, the your, 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 like, uh, uh, stakeholders. And because uh, sometimes people try to present the best part or the prepared part to them. So particularly when they are making a demo, they, they try to wait until the last minute. I call that like artist effect. They, they always, they don't want to show a half-baked uh, work to any other people. They wanted to finish that before showing it, but that's actually gonna be a big issue uh, in actually in real life environment. Um, because if people don't see something, they're gonna have all kind of uh, uh, kind of uh, guesses or, or wrong impressions. They they are trying to think, oh, you you didn't work well, or you you are trying to uh, uh, you you kind of uh, was drive, driving away from our original goal, things like that. So you keep uh, communicating all these things to your shareholders, to your team, so everyone on the same page. Any process could be uh, much easier. So, so yeah, in my opinion, I don't worry about what kind of process you use. You just pick the one that you 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 feel uh, will work best for your team, and 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 stick with the uh, uh, expectation management. That and that's it. Yeah, the the way that I kind of think about this, um, in just kind of taking a step back with with respect to whether it's agile or waterfall, Nomi, you, you mentioned that you're, you know, to to your point, you know, it kind of depends on your your team and situational context. But I kind of view it from the perspective of actually complexity domain, right? So like, if you know your target, if you know what you're going to be developing, and you you don't expect a lot of iteration, then then for, in my opinion. The, the obvious solution would be a waterfall methodology because you you know your target, you just need to execute against the target. And then I would say for, for Agile and to the point that you guys, that you're making, Sean, in terms of like expectations. And when it comes to like, uh, you know, I mean, you mentioned like a four week sprint. I, I think the, the length of the sprint, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks has to do with to the point you were making, Shang, about well, who the stakeholders are and what is a reviewable 
piece of code or you know what in, in agile what's called PSPI potentially shippable product increment. So what are you able to show in terms of a product increment? And so in games, I've typically seen something like more often two weeks or three weeks. In the web world, it's usually one week because you're able to quickly show for a website or whatever, you know, you can you can see things in a one-week increment versus, you know, in games you generally need two weeks, three weeks, if you're uh, some live ops teams or four weeks, for example, because that's how much time it takes to have something that is reviewable to stakeholders and th things of that nature. But yeah, that's kind of how I think about it. And then in terms of like, maybe just kind of going into the weeds a little bit more, do you guys have any specific thoughts when it comes to, for example, uh, the structure of the sprint, like having like that initial planning meeting how do you guys come up with the tasks? Who does the task breakdowns in terms of costing stuff? And this is something that's usually religious. You know, is it is it based on t-shirt sizes, complexity, time? And you know, I've I've gone through all that stuff, but I don't know if any of you guys have any specific thoughts on the the sprint structure itself. Uh, anyone want to jump in on that? <laughs> all right, I can, I, one thing I can mention is. Uh, uh, you, you keep seeing, uh, particularly about engineer uh, delaying, and uh, it's it's kind of a norm in game development. And uh, it, and people would think that all right, after several iterations, you know the estimation, uh, you you better estimate that, right? You learn the lessons, you know you you need to spend, and you keep seeing delay, and the people keep adjusting their estimation, and you keep delaying. So, and the people working very diligent, and people like uh, work day and night, and they still delay. So uh, the, the reason, I mean, we keep discussing about that, why that there are such kind of delaying. Uh, it's not about like people not learning. And uh, people are learning and they try to like uh, give certain kind of uh, buffers to any of the estimations. And they still get that. It's, I think this one thing is like, uh, uh, the biggest thing is like when you, still going back to that uh, expect, expectation management is like, when you set expectation and you, you try to do that uh, like within your control. So how should I describe that? It's like, um, say if there is a task assigned to engineer and that engineer uh, would say that, okay, I can do that in two days. That my, that's my, expect, uh, that's my uh, estimation, but let me give it another day as a buffer, because I know there are going to be a lot of iterations, uh, things like that. So the engineer gives that three days to uh, the PM or producer, and it's recorded in, in, the, in Jira, for example, and start working on that. And then the engineer think, okay, I have three days to work on this thing. So the engineer is basically working on this task with three days in mind, not two days in mind. That's the biggest problem. Like basically they think they can, they have control over three days. So they basically just scale this entire thing. For example, if it's a two day process, or if, it's, it's a, if it's a two day task, then something you probably will skip. You probably just like get a, a shortcut to certain thing. But you think with that three day in your mind, you think, oh, I'm gonna do this in a perfect way. I'm gonna restructure this code. I'm going to get there and you end up spending five days on that. 
So that's always the biggest issue. I keep talking to our engineers. Like when you, when you estimate that for two days, you work on two days, you leave that one day buffer just as a buffer. You still think you should finish that in two days, not three days. So, so that's actually one big lesson I've learned and I try to communicate to the teams. But unfortunately, it's not always working and I, I, I want to keep mentioning that. I think that that's going to be a, a, always a challenge to, uh, to, 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 to overcome. Yeah, I'll just, um, I, I think that that effect is probably universal. I think everyone's experienced it. Um, there's a couple really good books on the topic. And one is uh, by a guy named Donald uh, Reinertsen about product development flow. And he basically studies like the Toyota production system and that kind of Kanban uh, ecosystem. But he really does a great job of saying, hey, this model is applicable to product development. However, all the tuning parameters, all the variables are actually like almost the opposite. In manufacturing, you're trying to literally produce an identical piece with the least amount of change, the, the most reliability. In product development, you, you know, software is, you know, you write a piece of code and then you can run it on a million computers. So every feature is by nature unique and new and interesting. That's why we're adding features to our games, to our products. And so what he describes is that inherently iteration and experimentation has to be part of that journey because you're trying to find something new. You're not trying to replicate the feature you wrote last week because that one's already written. And so what he tries to describe is that when you think in terms of estimation, it is not about a commitment to, I will get my work done on exactly this scale in exactly two days. It's just too hard to predict the future and nobody is very good at it. So he basically tries to describe like an estimate should be treated as a, uh, like a bell curve and it's like the middle point. So if you say two days, you should think of that in terms of, well, sometimes you actually are pleasantly surprised. Usually it doesn't happen, but sometimes you get your work done in half a day. Um, more often you go long, but importantly, if you treat it as not a commitment of, I will get this done in two days, and instead it's a bell curve or it's a distribution of, of median expected completion time, that makes it safe for people to give honest estimates. And it makes it so that they don't feel that they have to pad the estimates. Because I think that the effect uh, Shang is describing is very common for people to want to add extra buffer time, and then they expand the ambition of their work. And then of course they run over. So I think that that's a key insight into um, estimation that if you can make people feel safe that it's not a commitment, but it's an expected average completion time, then it makes, and if you plan around that, you have to build buffers into your schedule, not into your estimates. Because as soon as you start doing that, you stack a buffer into the estimate, buffer into the schedule, and now everything, this is how things go, you know, two times over, four times over. Right. And I, I think it's a good point that, you know, software tasks are inherently you know, it's not a perfect science, so estimation is always a little bit off. And so to that point, like, how do you guys recommend to do estimations? And like, Chris, you're saying it should just be an a, a potential expectation, but not a commitment. Uh, Noemi, in the console world, I kind of feel like oftentimes it's it's considered a commitment, <laughs> if, if, if I'm if I'm correct. And so what do you guys recommend in terms of like, if you have a, whoever's running the scrum, if people are running behind, what should the reaction be? Or what, what should the attitude be? Is it like, oh, we're slipping again. Ah, oh, well, let's, let's do better next time, guys. Or should it be like, guys, <laughs> you know, like, like maybe you could speak to what the reaction of a 
you know, a producer or a product manager should be with respect to estimations and maybe what your experience has been. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, sure. Sorry. <clears throat> I have allergies. It's awful. Uh, yeah, I think, I think by having like two level of, uh, of planning, you also help with the slippage, for example, um, it was the same when I was in AAA and it's the same on mobile. Uh, I plan a milestone in three months. And then in that milestone, we're going to plan all the sprints. Um, but when I plan the milestone, I do work with estimates, which I add a buffer in time because also, right, if someone tells you it's going to take me three days, it's still going to take five days because they're not going to be able to work on it full time for three days. Usually, like especially us, we're a small team. So people work on many things at the same time and we're live. So they can be called on uh, doing live support as well, which usually takes precedence over what we're working on. Um, so when we do plan the milestone, we planned, uh, we plan buffer for uh, live, but we also plan some work that can slip because it's not mandatory. So I think that that has worked really well so far for us uh, because it means that people can work on other stuff that like no one is gonna no one is gonna come in and uh, like and be disappointed if it doesn't ship because it was like a stretch goal or an initiative that we wanted to add like something that's really nice and we do want to have it, uh, but it's less time sensitive. Um, so that's been working pretty well. Uh, and then into the sprint, we try to do the same thing as well. So uh, people are, uh, because we booked uh, life support in every sprint as well, that can also act as a buffer if we don't need it. Uh, so that like ultimately it, it, um, it balances itself out pretty well over the long run. So of course we don't want to slip in sprint. But ultimately, if we slip and sprint, but the milestone is fine, we're still in a good position, right? Like in the grand scheme of things, we're still going to arrive at our gate or at our next uh, like team goal that we want to hit. Um, all right, guys. Uh, any other thoughts on the estimation aspect? Uh, and do you guys also have any specific thoughts on like, you know, uh, time versus complexity versus whatever. <laughs> I, I would say the, the formal models that I've looked at would suggest that every estimate by itself is uh, wrong. <laughs> um, yeah. And if you have a consistent uh, measure, uh, a, a consistent form of estimation, yeah. it becomes predictive in the long term, which means that in aggregate, they'll actually become reliable, even though literally every single individual one is wrong. Yeah. And what's really valuable is to keep a consistent uh, form of uh, of uh, estimation. So to to Shang's point, if, if the team keeps adjusting how they're estimating every time, every cycle yeah. to try to account for it, then the model will never kind of like stabilize. Right. Um, so. Okay. Well, you know what? I think um, we're <laughs> kind of running out of time here. I actually have a bunch of additional things I wanted to talk about. Uh, you know, this, this kind of topic is very interesting to me, but in the interest of time, maybe we could just wrap it up here. And maybe as the final message, do you guys have any message for our audience? Maybe starting with you, Noemi? Uh, sure. Well, um, 
we're hiring for sure. So if we have a lot of position open. If people are interested, they can look at Square Enix Montreal. And uh, yeah, for me, like to wrap this up is really like to keep your production uh, strategies uh, adaptable and flexible. Okay, thank you. Chris? Um, yeah, no, um, I would just say that, uh, you know, this is a fascinating topic that uh, I had fun talking about and um, definitely encourage folks to, um, yeah, dig into literature around the subject. And uh, at Pragma, we're, um, our, our team is growing and we're focused on building, you know, backends to, to power online games. So I'd love to chat with folks. All right, Sean? Yeah, I think ultimately making game is a, a fun thing to do and uh, it's quite different from other stuff. So so what I would recommend is always follow your heart, uh, create a, a fun environment, uh, work with others, uh, laughing all the day. And, uh, and that, that's actually a pretty uh, positive attitude and they'll actually help you to improve your efficiency. And uh, yeah. that's very important in my opinion. Yeah. More important in that process in my opinion. <laughs> maintaining maintain a very healthy environment okay got it all right well thank you very much for your time everybody and i think that's it thanks everybody bye thank you thank you bye bye bye, bye.